Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. Hello and welcome to Movies vs. Capitalism, an anti-capitalist movie podcast. I'm Frank Capello. And I'm Rithka Rivera. Frank, what's up? How's your week going? Week has been going fantastic. Um, I don't know if you've heard, Rivka, but the HBO series Succession returned last week. So, Frank, what's Succession? Don't. Don't do I'm that. I'm kidding. It's, I did recently talk to someone who was like, I don't watch this. And I was like, are you insane? I think I told them to sit down. <laughs> I was like, sit, sit down. Sit down and, t- and like, Why? take the scolding. Yeah, I was like, you need to sit down. Be- well, and also I was just really excited for them because I was like, you are about to lose an entire weekend and have the time of your life. Yeah. So jealous. I really try not to be one of those people who's like, you haven't seen this thing? What's wrong with you? Because like when people do that to me, I'm like, that's annoying. Oh, no. I think that's like my brand. Shaming people based on their content choices. Ugh. Did you see the premiere? What were your thoughts on it? Okay, so I did not. Because I really, I I want at least two to watch. What? I want at least two to watch because the idea of having to watch it and then wait I can't. I don't have I don't have it in me to go through that feel. I know that feeling. I don't like it. Call it addiction, call it what you will. I don't I don't want to do it. So you say so you let them build up so that you can watch up so you don't have to wait. At least two or three at a time. Yeah, but what if something gets spoiled? What if what if you go on Twitter and you see I'm not I'm not on Twitter. Okay. Well, I guess you run no risk then. Uh, I retract my criticism. I don't. I. I haven't. It hasn't been an issue thus far, other than with maybe you and I. But I noticed scream immediately. Like no spoilers. So Frank, we weren't. We weren't just going to talk about Succession right here at the. No, top. I else? have a serious question for you. Okay. You are known to folks as a TikToker, if you will. Uh yeah. A social a socialist TikToker. You you do some nice work on there, but no, seriously, you. You're great on there. It's been a great platform to see you create on. And potentially, um, it will be no more, question mark. It's mm-hmm. right now, this is like the first bipartisan bill. <laughs> like the, you know, they can all agree on this that I think, and you know, you probably will know more of the facts than I will, but um, tell me if I'm wrong. What my understanding is that what they're pushing through now is a bill that will allow the Biden's administration or any of the president's administrations to essentially make a decision on banning something like TikTok without what's the word? Not pressure in court, but without, without being challenged, without being challenged, because I think the Trump administration had um, tried to do this, but they were challenged in court. And so that's what's going on. Right. Um, I honestly haven't been following it too closely. I know that there were hearings. I know they had like the CEO of ByteDance um, in for yeah, like a Senate hearing. Honestly, I'm not too worried about it on the whole, which is, I think, why I haven't been following it as closely. You know, I, I recently learned a stat that TikTok has 150 million monthly users just in the United States. That is almost half of the U.S. population. Wow. Yeah. And a lot of those are kids. A lot of those are teens. A lot of those are people, you know, younger people. What access? For real. Um, I wonder why the government is afraid of it. Sure. And, you know, I guess maybe it poses some actual security risks, you know, like, but like any, like giving but your information. But not any more t- than Facebook or Instagram. Yeah, really. I mean, this kind of like, this kind of comes down to two things for me. One, this is another opportunity for the United States government to demonize and scapegoat china mm-hmm. um and total red and, scare happening absolutely yeah f- frame them as you know the next big bad like this is the next vi- like the villain in america part three is china get a new villain so that's a big part of it and they're gonna go after any they're gonna go after anything we went after fucking spy balloons and now they're gonna go after you know the most used app and i think in history, I think it's like the I think TikTok is the most popular app in history. Wow. And so that's one part. The other part, and why I think they won't actually do anything, is because like if the Ticketmaster Taylor Swift debacle taught us anything, it's that like Gen Z and young folks can actually be politically activated when you take away their 
their shiny toys. It's a little bit reductive, but you know, there was such a huge backlash after that Taylor Swift ticketing debacle on Ticketmaster that the uh the DOJ like opened up an antitrust investigation into Ticketmaster because so many Taylor Swift fans were furious. So can you imagine can you imagine the US government being like, and now we're taking away your TikTok? Like there would be massive protests in the streets. Like it would it would actually and it's it's a sad state of affairs that like taking away TikTok could probably politically activate more younger people than I don't know the collapse of the livable climate, but I think there's some truth in that. I don't know. What do you what what do you think about all that? Well, it's so interesting in the context of what's happening in Paris and seeing the yeah. protests on the street seeing these images of just like, you know, garbage not being taken out, fires on the street, people protesting because the um, essentially what would be their social security, their version of that, the government wants to raise the age. What is it from 62 to 64? Yes. They're like the retirement age. Yeah. yeah essentially saying like, yeah, we're going to we're putting more years onto your time to work in life. And and, you know, I mean, that's not any more wild than us not having any kind of minimum wage <laughs> like any livable minimum wage in this country and yet we're not out doing like there's not fires on the street uh but yes i think i think that could be uh the reaction to tiktok being taken away all right well we should get to our conversation for today but before we do i just want to let our audience know that this podcast is produced by the two of us we perform all of the necessary labor to make this show happen. And as we're trying to practice our anti-capitalist values, we will not be selling ads on this show. We rely completely on community support to keep the show going. So if you're able to support us, please consider subscribing to our Patreon. For just $5 a month, you get access to our entire back catalog of premium episodes, and you'll be directly supporting this show. You can also leave us a one-time contribution in our tip jar, and you can find all of those links in the episode description in your podcast player or by going to mvcpod.com. You can also help us out for free by leaving a rating and review for this show on your podcast player. It only takes a few seconds, and it is very helpful in boosting the algorithm and getting this show in front of more people, so we really appreciate it. All right, we're going to take a quick break, but we'll be right back with our conversation about Clerks with Branson Reese. All right, we are now joined by our dear, dear friend, Branson Reese. Going to do a little bit of an intro for him. And Branson, I am going off of uh, your website. So this is what great, it says. Great. Uh, Branson is a Brooklyn-based comedian and illustrator. Cool. Maybe you want to update that. Do yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you not live in Brooklyn anymore? Well, I'm no longer a comedian or illustrator either. I, uh, oh, gotcha, yeah, gotcha. I live in LA and I just... I. I wander. It's a full nomad. Um, Branson's uh, book of comics, Hell Was Full, is available wherever fine books are sold. I have a copy. Highly recommend it. He is uh, the co-creator of the smash hit D&D podcast, Rude Tales of Magic. Uh, <laughs> and he's the creator of the animated series, Swan Boy on FX. Please welcome to Movies vs. Capitalism, Branson Reese. Hello, Branson. Hey, Hey, thanks for having me. It's great to see you guys. Oh, it's always such a treat to get to see you. You're rocking a, a thick beard right now, which is not your usual look. And you know what? It's working for you. Thank you so much. I thought the more on my face I could hide, the the better for just the I'm always thinking of the public good, you know. But you have the best eyes, Branson. And I just appreciate how this even highlights it more. Thank you so much. You're welcome. I really, I feel incredible. You guys were very nice to me before we even started recording. Yeah, and this is this is really good podcasting where we just comment on your visual appearance. Uh, people <laughs> love that. And so for those listening, we all know each other because we went to college together. So we've known each other mm -hmm. for a significant amount of time. That's crazy to think we all met each other five years ago. Yeah, <laughs> thank you Yeah, for we're that. all just 20, 23 years old. We just graduated college one year ago. Yeah, so Branson... You chose our film today. Today we're talking about Clerks. That's right. Hell yeah, I did. Yeah. Uh, the 1994 film. And it's a film. I, there's a cutoff from movie to film, and I think Clerks crosses the barrier in a way that, like, some of his others, I don't know that I would call Tusk or Red State a film, you know? Interesting. I liked Red State a lot. Did you? 
we'll get to red state. Let's... We look. We all, we've all got our thoughts on red state. <laughs> so for some reason, those who don't know, it was um, written and directed by Kevin Smith, starring Brian O'Halloran, Jeff Anderson, Marilyn Gilotti. I knew I was going to mess up that last name. Frank, what was it? Gilliardi. Gilliardi. Thank you. Lisa Spoonhauer and, of course, Jason Mewes and Kevin Smith as Jay and Silent Bob. Of course. And this is, um, yes, a film, not a movie, indie film success of the 90s. It got into Sundance. It was it was only made for $27,000 and got into Sundance and sold to Harvey Weinstein at Miramax. And it grossed 4.4 million worldwide, although I have read in interviews that Kevin Smith says they didn't really make much of a profit because there was a lot that went into marketing, etc. Well, he also said that Harvey Weinstein basically just like kept spending the profits on other Miramax shit and was just like, oh, we don't have the cash on hand. It's funny because I read that he was I read a few articles where he was very much in defense of Harvey Weinstein before we found out Harvey Weinstein was a piece of shit rapist. But he was defending mm -hmm. like, no, I'm not saying that like it was his fault. We just that's what happens with movies. I have a feeling now. Look, I don't want to put words in this guy's mouth. I have a feeling in the last few years, it's gotten a lot easier to be like, you know what? Yeah, he fucked us on that. That's true. Yeah. The, the floodgates open and everyone felt comfortable to say what how they actually felt. Finally, am I, am I wrong? I believe he's like been pretty public about it. he's like, I should not have worked with that guy. I apologize, which he like, has. And um, he actually when he found out, well. When he found out, I don't I don't know how much I buy of the I didn't know things were happening bit, but he yeah, did yeah. go on to I'm not a donate, I guess, give his the residuals of any of the Miramax films that he made. So anything he made with Weinstein, the residuals go to women in film. I mean, I loved what his sentiment was. No movie is worth that happening. And if it meant taking away my career, I would. He was pretty strong about that was shitty, which was nice because I don't feel like there was a lot of people who are necessarily that strong. There was a lot of, oh, I feel bad, but not recognizing of like your role within that, even just making films with this guy. Yeah, I feel like we got a lot of like sort of limousine liberal like, like oh, no, I'm so sorry. But I don't know. I, he's the only person I know who put any sort of money where his mouth was that I'm aware of. So a little bit of historical context on this film, this film as Rivka said, came out in 1994. This is the same year as Pulp Fiction, Shawshank Redemption, and Forrest Gump. Wow. Yeah. 94, often regarded as one of the all-time movie years. Um, also, same year as Ace Ventura, The Mask, and Dumb and Dumber. So really, oh, wow. like... The hits keep coming. What? Jesus. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, it was all 94 for Jim Carrey. So also at this time, uh, Bill Clinton is the president, and it just passed the 1994 crime bill. Uh, which many point to as the main contributor to the U.S.'s mass incarceration crisis. So that politically, that's what was going on. Um, also, later in that year's midterms, was the first time in 40 years that the Republican Party took control of both the House and the Senate. Uh, it was the Republican Revolution led by Newt Gingrich. Uh, in April of that year, Kurt Cobain was found dead in his Lake Washington house after committing suicide. In June, O.J. Simpson had been arrested for the killings of Nicole Brown and Ronald Goldman. And then in September, the TV show Friends premiered on NBC. God, just tragedy after tragedy. That was a year. <laughs> what a fucked up year. Fucked up year. So that's that's everything that's setting the stage for the release of Clerks, wow. the directorial debut of Kevin Smith. Wow. All right. So, Branson, you chose this movie. Why? I did. I'll admit it. So and now, now to be fair, there was a list. There was a list of movies and I, my wandering eye saw, saw Clerks and I flipped out. I could, I was like, we got it. I got to talk about Clerks. Now I remember distinctly, Frank, early on in our friend, I remember Clerks coming up once or twice just as some, you know, we, I remember us both expressing fondness for Clerks. It's a weird movie cause it's, it's ebbed and flowed, you know, like I've gone through periods of my life where I'm like, ah, yeah. Yeah, I'm sorry. I liked Clerics. I don't know what you what do you want me to do. But it, as I've gotten older, I've come to appreciate like it is a movie that was made by a middle to, like working class guy about that life, about that lifestyle. Mm -hmm. And like, to be honest, I don't know that we've gotten a lot more of that in America that, that like has achieved the level of success that Kevin Smith has. And I'm not saying it hasn't happened. I'm just saying I'm dumb and I'm ignorant of it if it has happened since him. But I because I, I certainly coming onto this, I was trying to think like, what is, what has what have we gotten since then 
that's made, but you know, like a, a movie that's like about the working class experience made authentically in the, and that's part of what's like charming to me about this movie is like warts and all it is about that, you know, and it is like, like I've worked these jobs. That's how people talk. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. A, it's stylized, but essentially, like, that is, it's it's a very, like... Um, I think a specific part of the working class, right? Working class is broad. So I'd say, like, very. a very specific white working class. And, like, even in that, in terms of just, like, that's how people talk, you know? I'm curious, <laughs> I'm curious, Branson, when you first encountered this movie, because you said you sort of ha- went on that journey to ebbed and flowed, but what was that like? Do you remember that first, like, what was that first reaction? Very well. I was in sixth grade. Uh, the Clerks cartoon had just come out. Oh, yeah. The animated series. Yeah. The animated series had just come out. I didn't know there was a movie attached to it. So I watched the animated series. I'm like, what is this? This is insane. I loved it. was very excited. But I didn't. I, there wasn't anything like it that I was watching. It was a little Simpsons-y, you know, but it, it was. Yeah. It was very, like, absurdist and mean-spirited in a fun way. Th- that kind of sense of humor I thought was very funny. And I was like, I got to see this movie. And I hunted it down. I saw the movie. And, it, like, I'm in sixth grade. It blew my mind. I had never. That's like how me and my buddies would talk to each other. But these, you know, they were, like, they were talking about sex. And, like, we were in sixth grade. We didn't know what we were talking about. But we were talking <laughs> like that. You know, we were just sort of <laughs> grabbing this type of conversation from, like, Gen X people. It was a lot like this, just less clever, you know? But I think there's a truth to that of, like, that excitement of, like, just saying, especially at a time like this, In the, I mean, when this when Clerks first came out, right, they slapped on that N17 rating, and then they had yeah. Alan Dershowitz <laughs> code about for them, who also was later Harvey Weinstein's lawyer, also involved oh, in God. the OJ case, I think, maybe. Dershowitz, like, went to bat for Clerks? Yeah, because they gave it an N17 rating and he and Harvey was like, I'm gonna get my my guy, my lawyer on it. I've got the guy for it. I got the guy, got the guy for it. And then they got it back down to R. But I think I mean, you know, the whole thing was like the language. And I do think there is like a, I, I hear you on that sort of like why the kid in us would be like, oh, curse words like dick, 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 fuck, fuck, fuck. Like, just yeah. say the thing that yeah. we're not supposed to say, especially if you're raised in a household that may, and I don't know if you were raised that way Branson but a household words like you don't say those words like I love throwing the finger out to everyone when I was little because I just was like why don't you want to see my middle finger no I definitely you're right I grew up in a house where I wasn't encouraged to talk about cunnilingus in sixth grade <laughs> <laughs> the first time I met your parents they were like please no talk of uh, cunnilingus you around yeah us. They, just if you do it on your own time but we don't want to hear it buddy and Kevin Smith's mom did not like the language of the film, but was very proud of her son. You can tell. It's like, you can tell in the movie, it's like, this is a movie that's like going to upset mommy. You know, like there just is an element of that, of like, it. Uh, part of the tone that would appeal to me about it in sixth grade too, is it's like, they're clearly smart. You know, like they're clearly intelligent people talking like this. And I think that was a big yes. part of this whole, like, as we got older, this really went away in culture, but this like slacker ethos of this sort of like, rejecting it's like conventional like uh structures of like power and chasing power and success and like well fuck it i'm gonna work at a stop and go and i'm gonna talk about like what it would have been like to eat out fred flintstone or whatever they say in this movie yeah i don't know i was like define smart i was i don't know i don't know sure very fair (laughs) i get to imagine that branson and i have very similar relationships to this film and to all of kevin smith's early work because we are two like white millennial men Uh, yeah yeah for the most part like you know high school like you're saying middle school high school like he was our guy and frank you're from jersey and i'm from new jersey I used to go to uh, Jane Silent Bob's Secret Stash, which was Kevin Smith's comic book store in Red Bank, New Jersey, with the hopes of catching a glimpse of the man himself. Never did. No. Yeah. You know, for for me at that time, it was someone who took, uh, like Branson said, this kind of potty humor and like really elevated it, like really kind of put like a... uh, uh, a lyrical spin on it and he did and you know like and you see there's touches of it in this movie where he gets into like some actual ideas about stuff um not all of it lands and not all of it ages well but <laughs> no there's definitely someone with a lot of thought <laughs> who also isn't afraid to say like you know dick a, a million times in his movie and as a kid growing up that was that was huge rivka i'm curious what was your relationship with kevin smith in your like middle school 
high school age because i have to imagine you probably had like dude friends in your life who were like oh we gotta watch clerks or mall rats and so like what was your experience with him i'm uh, honestly i must have but i just i had none truly and then i think it was you know and then it was I think Dogma and Chasing. I mean, I remember seeing like Chasing Amy. I remember seeing in the movie stores, but I really just was not in my world or my orbit. And I probably ignored the guys who were like, let's go watch Clerks. I mean, I learned about Kevin Smith more like as the filmmaker more recently. And I think super interested in his his like ethos of his distribution of films, what he did with Red State. I was super into how he, you know, he did Red State and he showed up at Sundance and got all the people who were going to buy the film into one room and then bought the film himself for $20 <laughs> and then went and did this sort of like grassroots traveling around with it. So I was kind of, I remember that. Yeah, yeah. I was really into that. And then putting to, and honestly, you suggested this film and I was like, right, clerks, like I know the, and I'm like, have I ever seen it? And Y'all, it was my first viewing. Whoa, and... God. That explains a lot, to be honest, about why I'm calling it smart. And you're like, I don't know. Is <laughs> I think the age discrepancy is really showing there. Yeah. Rivka, imagine that you are 15 years old and a boy and then oh view it through God. that lens. This is like the greatest movie to have ever existed. And you yourself are dumb in this equation. Now, keep it. <laughs> you have to be dumber than you are now. But let me tell you what I have. a Like, I don't think the part of that, that like boy part, I don't think that was like I had very much. I mean, me and my friends did crazy shit at that. Like, We went ring and run. We would like do awful pranks where we would throw things. I mean, we just loved doing things and like pushing the limit and just like, you know, I loved some dicks, some sluts, some like all of that. So I could get like, I, I, I think it's because I didn't make that connection then. And so it's not like a, Oh man, like it just wasn't part of that for me that like now I was like, Oh, I also for, it was hard to get through. I thought it was really bad acting Oh, it's it's a horrendously made film. I mean, yeah, <laughs> he's not a good filmmaker. I... Like it's, you know, that shocking thing of where you're like, wait, this is like the indie darling of the time that everyone's like this movie and the intelligentsia are like this movie. And you're just like, what the fuck? This movie? I did watch it. I had to watch it twice because the first Whoa. time I was also like the like the first scene I was triggered. The boys room. I was like, at least his mattress isn't on the floor. But like. How many rooms like that have I been in? It was just, I was like, no. And um, so I did have to watch again to be able to like hear what they were saying and get past. They're all reading off cue cards, right? Yes. It is very like SNL guest host level, like acting for the most part of just like, yeah, like, all right, that was the take where everyone was looking at each other the most. But critics at the time, like loved the acting, which just made me question. I was just like, I don't trust much of our cinematic history it was i'll be honest i'll I'll side with critics of the time on that i do love the acting i don't think it was good but i love it you know i've got plenty of friends i don't think are good people but i love them dearly you know like the i feel that way about the acting and this of like well no it's not it's not olivier but it's well my second watch i did i did this i hear what you're saying is the second time around i was a little more like oh these old guys like Yeah, I think the narrative of how this movie got made and how it got into Sundance and then was bought and distributed ultimately fed into like the critical response because people like you were saying like, oh, this is just some dude who works in a convenience store who blew all of his money on making this movie and then it got into Sundance and then it got like and he got all of it. He's just his friends acting like what? Like, wow, what an achievement for this guy. Like, I think I think that I think that kind of fueled the critical response, which is sort of like, you know, giving it a little bit more credit than maybe was due. Which is great. And then I don't know if it's just in red. It just makes me think of, you know, when people are like, God, I wish I had the confidence of a mediocre white guy. You are not mediocre white men. But do you know what I'm saying? Of just, oh, I'm that's like- I was about to say you should try it. It rocks to have that com- to be a <laughs> mediocre white guy and have that confidence. I wish everyone had it. But I'm just saying like that is this movie in a lot of ways where you're like, oh, this it was a little like I'm sure there are people who were making you know and and I think he says a lot of that like he recognizes he was just really lucky even says like if I had done this movie two years later when the internet started I probably would not be a thing 
But okay, so politically, I think my, and I want to know what your thoughts are, Branson. Like, I think my biggest takeaway watching it through this lens, and I get it, he's representing, you know, the ridiculous nature of people doing these dead end jobs, which they hate. And that, at least what he said is like, there wasn't representation of that at the time Mm -hmm. in cinema. And like that to me, I'm like that, I was excited about it has a lot of anti-capitalist potential. But then I never felt like it reached any of that. And that primarily the movie just felt like it validated this idea that the problem is the individual actor and not any kind of system. Mm. You know, I think I was like, by the end of the movie, like, Dante, just pull yourself up by the bootstraps. My God, like that was my sentiment. <laughs> Whoa, <laughs> was yeah. just like, And so I don't know, I, I, I felt like there was a lot of opportunity. And so that's where I was like, oh, I don't know that that was Kevin Smith's aim. Doesn't have to be, but Definitely representation was an aim, but it felt like it represented capitalism as is. And the solution was like, you better pull it together within the system. So that's where it left me. But I'm curious your thoughts of the politics of this movie. Sure. I mean, I think uh, a friend of mine described the movie one time as saying, like, this movie has politics the way that a dog has dreams. Uh, That's like really stuck with me. (laughs) Uh, It's like, sure, but like... (laughs) But does it matter? Like the, I do think this movie has politics, though. It's well, I'll, I'll, you know what? Rather than try to talk around it, I'll just say what I got from it when I was young, and then what I got from it again, older. When I got from it when I was young was just this sort of sense of like, buddy, you're already fucked. Like you're all like watching it at twelve. Again, I was twelve when I first saw this movie. I already had this feeling of like, like we all know I'm not going to be moving and shaking this world. I'm not going to set the world on fire. Like, okay. I'm fucked already. Like, I just sort of knew that naturally. And uh, as as accurate or inaccurate as that was, that's just sort of how I felt. And watching this movie, it was very, like, hopeful feeling of, like, that doesn't mean you can't carve out joy. That, you know, you can't, like, that doesn't mean you have to go into, you know, a job you hate and try every day. You you have what I found to be a very, like, I didn't have the language for it at 12, but I now know is, like, very sort of, like, spiritually liberating feeling watching it of, like, oh, I can go into this job I know I'm going to have to get and I cannot try. And like, I found that very powerful as a kid. And like, sure, Randall, I mean, God, fuck it. My wife was like watching it when she was like, when it got to Randall, she was like, I'm sorry, I can't keep watching this with you because I can tell how important Randall was to you as a kid and it's making me uncomfortable. <laughs> <laughs> like, but like to me, Randall was the model way more than Dante. What Dante was just the protagonist, but Randall was the model of like, don't try. Don't give them any, don't give them an ounce of your soul. Go into work and insult the customer. It was this very, like, when you hear about, like, the um, former Soviet workers, like, having to go to, like, start working at McDonald's. And they Mm. they were told, it's like, you know, the customer is always right. And they're like, but we're the ones with the food. Why? No, they should be subservient to us. We have what they want. And it's like that feeling of, like, no, dude, I got the movies. I w- later I got a job at Blockbuster and I was this exact kind of employee of like, no, nah, fuck <laughs> you, buddy. I, you got to go through me. <laughs> no way. It's a very liberating feeling. I don't know. And that's something I got from it that I found to be a very, like, I hadn't seen that. I hadn't seen that in anything. And I still don't really see that reflected in things very often. This, like, the power of, like, not playing the game. Mm. It had been a while since I had seen this. It'd probably been, I don't know, maybe close to a decade. Uh and when you chose it, I was like, oh, hell yeah. The working class anthem yeah. that is Kevin Smith's Clerks can't wait. And revisiting it, I was surprised to relearn that like the villain of the movie is not his boss. It's not the system that has put him right. in this place. It is the customers, which is funny. And when you're when you're not watching it through like the lens that we're watching it through, you're like, oh yeah, it's funny. Customers suck. Shit on the customers, spit water in their face. Yeah. That's hilarious. But now watching it again, I'm like, oh, they're they're not the problem. They're also trapped. Right. Mm-hmm. They're also trapped in this system. And I mean that it is sort of representative of like the wider problem of like the working class tribalizing itself against one another rather than like turning around and being like, oh no, it's actually the boss who went to Vermont and left me in charge of the store. He's the actual villain of this movie. The character who doesn't appear in the movie at all at all and that's i i i was a little i was honestly disappointed by that because i thought this movie was going to have stronger like anti-capitalist working class politics and i was like oh no this is just uh 
like like Rivka said, it's like it puts all of the of the blame on the individual. You know, it's like it's Dante's fault for not having his shit together. And then, you know, like Randall basically gives him like the pull yourself up by your bootstraps uh, speech at the end of the movie. That's I mean, like it's essentially here. I'm going to play a little bit of it right now. Do you want to blame somebody? Blame yourself. I'm not even supposed to be here today. You sound like an asshole. Jesus, nobody twisted your arm to be here. You're here of your own volition. You like to think the weight of the world rests on your shoulder, like this place would fall apart if Dante wasn't here. Jesus, you overcompensate for having what's basically a monkey's job. You push fucking buttons. Anybody could waltz in here and do our jobs. You, you're so obsessed with making it seem so much more epic, so much more important than it really is. Christ, you work in a convenience store, Dante. And badly, I might add. I work in a shitty video store, badly as well. You know, that guy Jay's got it right, man. He has no delusions about what he does. Us, we like to make ourselves seem so much more important than the people that come in here to buy a paper or, God forbid, cigarettes. We look down on them as if we're so advanced. Well, if we're so fucking advanced, what are we doing working here? Like, he's he's close. He's so close. He's so Because, like, the whole, like, who gives a shit about this stupid exploitative job, that is on. But it, they don't actually get close to pointing out who put them in this position in the first place. It's like that, you know, that famous like duck season, rabbit season where they're pulling the sign and it's like duck season, rabbit season. And then they get to the end and it says Elmer season and they both look at Elmer Fudd and they're like, nah. it, it, this is that if they just forever, it's just forever duck season, rabbit season. Yes. Yes. That's a perfect way of putting it. Which if that was the absurdity, they were recognizing right. that theme, which I'm not sure was fully fleshed out or recognized, which might just be the youth of this. But I don't I don't know enough of Smith's work to know if he fleshes that out. But like that to me, like push that absurdity. That would be great. But I feel like that absurdity wasn't pushed. And for me, I was like the revisioning of this film that I would want to see would be like exploring this post-work society where they're like, yeah, yeah. when we close the store, like actually literally, and like, you know, he puts the coins out, like what can they do to be like, we don't actually need to be here to run this and mm -hmm. we can go play hockey on the roof and like the store can still run and like I can still get my paycheck. And that's a great example of like, why can't we have robots doing the hard labor, humans doing the things that are like joyful and productive in different ways and everyone gets uh, some kind of universal basic income and healthcare, and like what a great society i will say if they arrived at that conclusion in this movie i wouldn't buy it i would not buy these two guys like arriving at yeah. the so that's part of what charms me about this movie is it's like failure like, i'm not presenting this as like an especially effective political movie or like polemic or anything like it's but part of what like i like about it is the what at least to me reads is the authenticity of like, yeah, sometimes you just don't figure it out though. Like you do just mm -hmm. get trapped in it and it does just like, it does just feel like this, you know? And it's like, I've been both of those characters a million times before of like, especially when I was younger and like even stupider than I am now of just like, I don't know what this, like, obviously the solution is like murder your boss. But like, I could, you know, I couldn't figure that out at the time. It was just like, yeah, yeah, I guess I'm just miserable. Like, and that's sort of all they arrive at. It is a great depiction of how shitty work can be and how like how terrible certain jobs are and how like they're reduced, like especially the opening, the opening sequence of him opening the store. Like anyone who's ever worked like in retail, in a restaurant, whatever, just knows that feeling of just like, oh God, I have to do the same yeah. things over and over again. And I'm getting paid minimum wage which in 1993 must have been like five dollars an hour or less you're just like you're making you're making nothing and you know that the work that you're doing is meaningless and like that part that aspect of it is something that really holds up which is just like yeah there's some jobs that are terrible just by the sake of their existence and the way that the people who do those jobs are treated i think that i'm putting it together like from what you said branson because that really I really leaned into that about being like, there's a there's a power here in the not giving a fuck and the mm -hmm. like taking that power back. I think what it is for me and watching it is I just felt like I just can't relate because I could never in any job I've had that that was similar to this. Like I couldn't imagine talking to my boss like that. Like these guys just have certain lack of mm -hmm. consequence that is yeah. just totally related to them being these young white guys and it's just not and like that's the part that I just kept being like, 
yeah, right. <laughs> like, yeah, fucking right. Yeah. Like that is like such a major fucking privilege to like talk to your boss like that and not get fired or like talk to certain people in your store. I don't know, just as a woman and and like not sure. a white guy, just that's where it totally lost me. So I wonder if there is like a certain you have to be able to relate to that in some extent to be able to go on the full journey. I imagine it's funny. You know, I was thinking, too, when you were talking about like no blame is placed on the boss and you were talking about like later Kevin Smith is it's like also it, in prep for this, I watched Clerks, too. And he, oh, wow, he, I, yeah, so I, I did the work. I did, I did the hard, unpleasant work of watching Clerks 2. He not only is, the boss is a character in Clerks 2, but not only is the boss a character, she rules. It's Rosario Dawson, and she's, like, cool and does oh, nothing right. but make their life better and easier. And it's like, oh, yeah, he, he lost it completely. By whatever happened between 94 and 2006, it's gone. Uh, you know, potentially, you know, the, the Kevin Smith that might have been radicalized is like completely dead by that point of like, she's cool. She sleeps with Dante, even though she has no reason to Dante's so unappealing. No. Like, it's awful. It's bad. I don't. Oh, OK. So that's interesting, because what happens to Kevin Smith? I, too, did. I, too, went into once I was like these doors were open. I was like, I am oddly fascinated by this man. You're right. I watched Clerk the documentary. Then I like got into a YouTube spiral of interviews from the nineties. And then I even watched like a podcast with him and Steve-O. Dude, hell and yeah. I have to say, I find Kevin Smith now to be like far more charismatic than like the Kevin Smith of the nineties and like a genuine joy and openness. And so, well now hold on. Part of that is that he was talking to Steve-O. Anyone is going to be their best self when they're being interviewed by Steve. No, but I think in general, okay. Part of people delineate a big point of that during Zach and Miri make a porno. He started smoking weed because Seth Rogen introduces him to weed at that point. That is adorable. Yeah. But like smoking weed is in like he claims he's smoked weed every day since then. So like there's like a big delineation. I just think, yeah, I found him very charismatic. But in terms of like what happens to him, he does seem to go into immediately like he gets all this money. He's immediately making these big picture Hollywood movies, which, you know, Mallrats does, quote unquote, terrible not what's expected. And so he does seem to have this interesting dynamic where he's constantly like, how do I get the magic of clerks back, of working with my friends, of making art just for art's sake without the pressure of the big studios? And then the solution seems to like later on be, he's really into this idea of like, of being just like the commodity is him, right? And he talks mm -hmm. about it a lot where he's like, I'm just excited to be like, my art is me. Like I'm the Kevin Smithiest Kevin Smith. And in that interview actually with Steve-O was interesting because he debates, he even, they're talking about addiction and he asks him, he's like, do you think this is potentially like there's some kind of addiction here to the fact that I am like commodifying myself? But he asks like with so genuinely, which was, it was a great conversation because I was asking that as I was following his career. So I just think that in terms of this conversation is interesting of like, is he he's like the king of hustle culture in some ways and like he's just commodified himself and what are the consequences of that to a person well i got to imagine that is the result and i'm total this is total speculation but that is the result of sort of like the hollywood roller coaster that he went on because like you said he he's an indie darling he gets to make his own movies then he starts getting the opportunity to like make like Marvel movies. And at one point he was commissioned to write a Superman movie. And then he yeah. directed, he directed, I think it's called, was it cop out with Bruce Willis? Like he's directing, yes, like he's now directing like big studio pictures gets absolutely chewed apart by the studio system, has these horrendous experiences. Then he comes back on the other side of it where he like can no longer get his movies financed whatsoever. And he still has his creative juices flowing. So that's when he starts like, you know, like, I'm going to do the Red State tour. I'm going to do these self-financed uh, projects. I'm going to, like, I'm going to now start podcasting. Yeah. He's, like, one of the first podcasters. He's the original so I, crowdfunder. Yes. And, I mean, we've talked about this before, but, like, you can't be that famous, have that much money, have that much public exposure without your brain breaking in a way. Yeah. So I think he's just found himself on the other side of all this, and now he's, he's like, what you're saying, Rivka. He's just like, I am the product. I am the commodity. Hustle, hustle, hustle. This is how I get my art made. And this is this is the only avenue that is is left to me. 
Um, that's just my that's my work. That's my Smith working theory. I buy it. I was excited that he was questioning it. And it was that kind of questioning I wanted more in clerks. Right. Like he was questioning even that mm-hmm. reality, which like I just wanted there to be a little more questions of the reality and the reality of capitalism was just so taken for granted of like, this is just the air we breathe. This is how it is. This makes sense. I completely agree. It's like, it's not a very inquisitive and it's like, I think you need to only look at his next movie to see it's like, well, what is his mind on? You know, is it on like questioning these systems? Or if you look at Mallrats, like, no, there's no question is asked in Mallrats other than like, isn't this mall crazy? (laughs) Like there's no, I don't know how you feel Branson, but like for me, Dogma is his best film. For me, that has everything that we're kind of talking, where he's like grappling with something. Mm -hmm. He's grappling with the idea of religion versus faith versus like these structures and puts together a really like beautiful and hilarious parable that sort of is like him working through his relationship with his own Catholicism. And I mean, as a as someone who's raised Roman Catholic, that was the movie that like really like like broke my head open. And I was like, oh, shit, the church doesn't matter. And like you can say this stuff about the church. Like so I think I think he gets there. And then Dogma, I think Dogma didn't do that well or like didn't have like people were kind of like, what the fuck is this guy doing with this religion movie? And then he pivots and he's like, all right, I guess I'll do Jay and Silent Bob Strike Back, which is just like big, dumb Hollywood nonsense. And did great, right? Didn't Jay and Silent Bob? Yeah, it's star studded. Now, I'm skewed because I all I have to go at is the boys at my middle school who by that rubric, it was the it was fucking the godfather to, you know, it was huge. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, I had the Jay and Silent Bob Strike Back soundtrack on CD. Same. <laughs> fucking losers we were. Dude, I was very into those soundtracks. Dude, I was like, what, like 13 years old? I was like, whoa, the Jesus Lizard. These guys are great. They are great. <laughs> I mean, I stand by, but it was very off of what the rest of I was listening to. He... I think it's so just looking at the rest of his career, you know, and like, I I like dogma a lot. I think that's probably a high water mark of like his skill and like what he has to say coming together in like a nice marriage. Mm-hmm. I think clerks is still my guy of his movie, but like, okay. I know the story of him. Like, I think it's Roger Ebert. had said, it's like, he got like a big laugh among critics. And they were like, what's next? And his answer was whatever makes me money. And I got a big laugh. And then they all saw Mallrats and they were like, holy shit, he wasn't kidding. And they say that very dismissively. And I think that part of why I root for clerks and still have a lot of fondness for clerks is that really exposes a lot of like the condescending attitude towards him of this like, sure. oh, wow, he just wants to make money. It's like, yeah, motherfucker, he's still poor. He doesn't have money. Of course he wants to make money. You have it. So you take it for granted. Like he's got to make Mallrats now at this stage in his career that that excuse wears a little threadbare for me, but second movie just wanted to make a lot of money. There's something I find very charming and honest to that. Yeah. That actually I think does a lot to underline how like authentic I do genuinely find clerks as an experience of like, wow, the guy who made clerks still needed money after he made clerks. Yeah. I mean, he, that's money where his mouth is, you know? I mean, I did walk away from this being like, I, I think this might be one of the most gen X movies ever made. Like yeah. this is, like more than like even maybe like reality bites like the, this is like the hallmark of gen x gen x is just like complaining that everything sucks life is bullshit everyone is sold out while still being the last generation that benefited from like the social democracy that was built by the new deal and the great society like before neoliberalism made economic life in the u.s completely untenable for our generation and that's like fully reflected in dante and randall and you know like randall says so much at the end which is just like Yo, dude, like you could you could go do something else. You still have all the options. Yeah, in we're front fine. Of you. you know, like, yeah, we're we're fine. You're the one making a big deal of yeah. this bullshit. You know, it's you're completely right. I do think that's part of why on this rewatch, I was so charmed by it. And I was like, God, it feels like a fantasy. Like, even though at the time it was like presented as like, oh, this is a grim reflection of reality. But now it's like you look at the Simpsons house or something. It's like, how does Homer afford that? It's like, because the show was made in 89 and it was actually based on growing up in the 70s. Like, that's how he affords it. But like, they are living just like off the fat of the land, you know, like we just there is surplus. And so they just can do like, I've worked many of these same types of jobs. And I've never been able to just go play hockey on the roof. I would be killed. (laughs) Like my boss would have me executed if I did that. So there's a fantasy. I mean, I guess part of it is like, I'm no better than like a Marvel movie guy. You know, it's like, it's a wish fulfillment thing. Yeah. 
the one part that still resonated so much, and I'm so glad it did, uh, and I think the part that had the best politics in the movie is, of course, the second Death Star conversation. Oh, yeah. Um, this is an all-timer, Dante and Randall debating over whether or not uh, the contractors on the Death on the second Death Star deserve to be blown up by the rebels. And uh, a roofer overhears them and pipes in. I'm just going to play a little bit of it. My friend here is trying to convince me that any independent contractors who were working on the uncompleted Death Star were innocent victims when they were destroyed by the rebels. Well, I'm a contractor myself. I'm a roofer. Done already home improvements. And speaking as a roofer, I can tell you a roofer's personal politics comes into play heavily when choosing jobs. Like when? Three weeks ago, I was offered a job up in the hills. Beautiful house. Tons of property, a simple reshingling job. They told me if I could finish it in one day, I would double my price. Then I realized whose house it was. Whose house was it? Dominic Bambino's. Babyface Bambino? The gangster? The same. The money was right, but the risk was too high. I knew who he was, and based on that, I turned the job over to a friend of mine. Based on personal politics. Right, and the next week, the Foresi family put a hit on Babyface's house. My friend was shot and killed. Didn't even finish reshingling. No way. I'm alive because I knew the risk involved in that particular client. My friend wasn't so lucky. Any contractor working on that Death Star knew the risk involved. If they got killed, it's their own fault. For me, that's just like, that's that's like the Kevin Smith at his best, where he's l making you look at a piece of pop culture in a different way, like thinking about the second Death Star explosion, and then actually applying like a smart political lens to it yeah. um and then ha having this guy come in being like essentially the contractors on the second death star were like yeah i'll go work for fascists i'll go work for space fa fascists and you know what if you're gonna align yourself with space fascists and you get blown up uh, that's kind of on you and that that really held up for me i think the direction of that scene is why and i rivka i would love to know your reaction to it because it's I, I i imagine it's very different than me at 12 being like you can talk like this you know like <laughs> like the part of what i love about it is the direction like the artificiality it's like he's almost got and i really it's a very similar itch is scratched watching this when i was young as later when i a few years later when i would discover like john waters of like, holy shit, this like transgressive, like you can make a movie like this, this is crazy. But like, it's very artificial. Like the guy just shows up out of nowhere to be like, hey, I couldn't help but over here, like I'm a doctor, you know, that like, sure, like, you know, nothing of my work that, and he delivers his lines almost like that, um, Tobias Funke when he's acting in Arrested Development of like, and I'm the last guy you'd want to mess with. Like, it's so fake. <laughs> it's so like stilted, the acting that it creates this like, I'm in a weird dream. I'm in like a weird, like minimum wage dream of like, God, we can, all we are ever given is trash. You know, all we get is this like trash pop culture. And so we're going to eat it on our own terms, you know, and make our own like meaning out of it. I just like, God, I still, I feel so stupid talking about like how cool I think that scene is, but I really do. No, agreed. That was the scene that made me lean in like, oh, maybe this movie's going someplace. And then it was just lots of, you know, dicks and blowjobs and snowballing. And I was like, oh, we're we're not we're not going anywhere. But I think it does a great job of just like setting up the problem. And and this was the time where I as the audience, I'm like, oh, I don't know how I feel fully, you know, but it set up this reality of like I, I work with police officers and I feel like this is something that I'm always trying to contemplate is when you know you're a pawn you're so clearly a pawn in a game but how much responsibility does that pawn have yeah and then the idea of like but you but is it messed up to call someone a pawn <laughs> you know who doesn't have a personal opinion or personal politics um how much responsibility do you have it, it's just pinning i think the two poles of this movie which is like the personal versus the system but the personal in this totally wins after this there's no there's no question of system really after this. Rivka, I think you putting it that way, this movie sets up the problem and it doesn't necessarily offer the solution other than like, I don't know, just don't care. But I think that is, I think it sets gives that solution, I'll say. I'd rather it not give a solution and leave us feeling in dis, dis ease with that. I think this actually does give us a strong solution, which I would prefer if it left it up to us not knowing. But the solution to me is just clearly like, 
Dante, get your shit together. I, th- I think that's spot on. Um, really quickly, because bef- before we wrap up, we we do need to talk, I think, about the the sexual politics of this movie, which have not aged well at all. And probably weren't good at the time, to be honest. No, uh, but it was definitely during the time where, you know, men could be like, oh, ha, 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 that's funny. And, you know, a woman would be like, that bothered me. And the guy would be like, you don't get it. Like this, that's, yeah, yeah. that's the time that this was. Very- yes, or just like, I'm terrified to say I think otherwise. So I'm going to laugh long and make fun of blowjobs as well and sluts and whores. Yeah, it's it, this. This was, I think, the hardest part uh, on the rewatch, uh, which was also a bummer because this is a lot of the movie. Like there's a lot of yeah. like gratuitous sexual humor, like the whole, uh, you know, making a woman come conversation between Dante and Veronica is very reductive. The the whole like how many dicks have you sucked? Like the porn titles like everything and then the and then the end with caitlin with the the dead guy in the bathroom really just tough um also really drove home the idea that just dante is just the worst like this is really for me i was like this is peak mediocre white man this is like a pretty dumb asshole with nothing going for him and he's got two pretty like wonderful women vying for him and then like one of them suffers the worst trauma of her life. And he's and then the immediate next scene is him complaining about his own life. Yeah, it was really that that was it's rough does not hold up. I do feel like I got to chime in here because I did pick this movie <laughs> and then watched that to my horror to be like, God, my friends, I'm making them watch with it. your <laughs> wife leaving the room. <laughs> well, she's gone. All right. Yeah. But it's so it's like I don't necessarily mind. I could watch a four hour movie that's all sex jokes if it's better than this. You know, it's like part of it is it's like I don't even mind if it's juvenile is fine. That's like, you know, I got no leg to stand on there. But it's that it's like it's like very like sort of casually like misogynistic and sort of hateful that it's like that's where it loses. You know, it's like you talk about blowjobs all you want, but let's let's find a better angle than this. Come on. Well, that's the thing, right? I think it, it sort of is under the guise of like, this is just fun. We're just saying dicks and titties. What's the problem? And you're like, no, you're. The through line is that you fucking hate this fucking woman for giving for basically just having sex just like you did. But like she's a whore for it and you're going to make a decision. And like all the women in this are just like commodities. Like that's the the storyline is like, do I want Caitlin? Do I want Veronica? Well, I don't know. Like and then that just last image of Caitlin getting in that ambulance Well, he just, it's not acknowledged, you know, and that it's cruel. Yeah, it's cruel. And I think there's a smarter, you know, with a different lens that was truly maybe like, it's not that you can't have this, these characters in this world and this storyline, but you would have a, you could do so much with just how do you hold on that? What's the frame on that? Like, is this her story? That was a psychologically tragic, crazy image, but it's just passed over as like a joke. I I don't even have a problem with like shocking, like, you know, edgy comedy or whatever. Like if you want to do that, like fine, you know, here I am giving this movie notes that came out when I was six, but like, (laughs) if you want to do that, it's like, it reminded me a little, I got the image of the, in wet hot when they, anytime they fuck up with the kid, you'll just see the shot of the van throwing the kid out into the wilderness. (laughs) And it's like, that to me is like, yeah, that's how you dial it up just enough that it's like, this is psychotic. What I'm watching is criminal activity here. Like this is psychotic behavior. Then I would be like, all right, I'd be a little more inclined to like be give the movie some goodwill or be on its side there. But it doesn't really rise to that. It's just like, yeah, this woman just like underwent like excruciating trauma. And we don't really even we don't even then have like the presence of mind to then play it as like. And the joke is that Dante is so callous. You know, it's not like george's fiance dying and then them being like well do you want to go get dinner and it's like well the joke is that they're callous you know whether you like it or not that's the joke and the joke here isn't that the joke is just that it happened to her and it's like that's at best the nicest thing i can say about that is it's really lazy yeah and i think like the misogyny couched in this veneer of like cleverness yeah that they're being like really pithy and lyrical with the way that they are sexist and misogynist is sort of like at the time, it takes the edge. It makes you feel like it's taking the edge off where it's like it's still very misogynist and sexist. But it's like, oh, but they're like spinning these yarns. So like it's actually funny and acceptable. Yeah, it's rape culture. A hundred thousand percent. It's it really, like yeah. I can fucking smack your ass and abuse you because it's a joke. Take it easy. It's funny. 
And it's, you know, you're kind of like interesting that Harvey Weinstein was like, these guys Shit, no, you yeah. know i think that's a big part of it and everyone's like no it's because yeah. this big cutting edge film i think there is something there where it it was part of that cultural like there was a lot of aggression towards women and backlash in this period of time against feminism and i think this movie kind of serves that purpose and also racist like it's got all the things in there it's got it all. It's, I mean, and you need only watch Clerks too, which is the, both of those things are like heightened even more. It's, uh, it, there's an extended scene where Randall says the N word a number of times. Oh my God. And it's, that's uh, right. Whoa. It's an unpleasant watch. And also, it's especially an unpleasant watch because it does sort of reveal it's like that was part of Clerks too. That's not like a new thing that came up between 94 and 2006. That was, that just didn't happen to happen in this one, you know? That, Brings up a really good point. The last thing I'll say before we get to the awards, I in an evening with Kevin Smith, which is his uh, lecture series that he does at college campuses. At one point, uh, a, a woman, a queer woman in the audience gets up and is like, hey, so like Chasing Amy is an incredibly offensive movie to me um, because the whole premise of your movie is like a straight man with the power of love and charm can turn a queer woman to to be attracted to him and the jason lee character just keeps saying he's there's something like you know all like all all a lesbian needs is like a good dickin or something uh like that's that's a line of the movie uh and smith's response is like yes but by me putting those words into the dumbest character's mouth i'm invalidating them and in the speech people are like they're like clap 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 and there's like some intellectual integrity integrity to that. But when you like actually unpack it, you're like, well, no, because this is going up in front of a mass audience. And probably most of the dudes who see that are just going to be like, that's fucking funny that that guy said that. And they're not going to they're not going to take away the deeper meaning. Yeah, I call bullshit. I think Chasing Amy is significantly worse than this. And in, in like every regard to be, I really have no fondness for that movie. But the um, I, yeah, that, that I get that that's his argument. And I get that that helps him look in the mirror, at, you know, after making that movie, like, for sure, you got to come up with some extreme justifications after making that. But like, it's and I also agree, it's like, it's not his job to be his audience's parents, you know, and teach them right from wrong. Like, for sure. I've, I've said that about other much better filmmakers. So I've got to say it again here. But no, no, <laughs> like he puts it. It's like the, the dumbest character says that. But the dumb character who is shown to be right in that movie a number of times and is undeniably charming and funny. It's like, yeah, I just don't. I think that stinks. I, I, I don't understand that when it and I know it comes up as a defense for a lot of things, including Saturday Night Fever, which we should definitely talk about on this podcast. Um, I'm feeling a lot I that. Bleh. But like that, you can't just show things as they are without a perspective like you have to have a strong perspective as filming i think showing things as they are it's like just showing us the reality that we're already like we're all living in that what are you doing by just putting it on screen like that doesn't pass for me just like people say messed up things so let's give them a platform for it i don't get it no i completely agree i don't think the movie has earned the like the this thing of it's like the like ricky gervais stand-up or something of like you see i'm holding up the mirror mate it's like no you're fucking not dude you're don't, <laughs> don't you fuck you're the office guy shut up like the, no, you're not like it's not holding up a mirror and it is presenting this like fantasy world like if he if he's able to break reality and have the independent contractor talk like that like then why is it why is that it? Why does it end there? You know, if they're he's able to break reality and they can go play hockey on the roof, why does it end there? Why can't that then be extended? Why can't he invite other people into the party? And I don't think he's like a cold-hearted guy or a bigot. I really don't. I think he's just sort of dumb with this. No, stuff. he's very charming. And I'm a fan now. Thank you both for it. Like, I'm a fan of the man, Kevin Smith, now with all the complexities. And I think he does own up own those complexities. And I, I don't think I'm going to watch any more clerks movies though i don't think i'm <laughs> it doesn't get better you're good on the clerk series and all of the clerks uh derivative content so <laughs> branson it's time to ha hand out the awards for this movie uh we like to give out an award for a point with a view this goes to the character with the best politics in the movie frank who did you who'd you give this award to i'm going with the roofer 
I forget his name. He does plug his business, uh, which is a shame because I forgot it. But yeah, no, he's I think he comes through with like the strongest political message in one scene, hands down. Yeah, I had the roofer too. Branson thoughts. I'm not giving it to the roofer, although I do like, look, I got nothing against this roofer. I'm not, I'm not saying the roofer doesn't deserve it. I'm I'm going to give it to Randall, though. I stand by my initial assessment wow. of, of his his presented philosophy of stop trying, stop trying, stop caring about this, I think is like, I think if this movie has any point of view that is like worth taking from it, I, I still take that. I still think that's like, a valid thing to say to somebody who's like working at a dead end job is like, look, don't give your soul to this. You know, you can give it your time, but you don't have to give it any more than that. I, and that, that has gotten me through a lot of shitty dead end jobs, that philosophy that I picked up when I was young. And I think there's something to, I now I think it's very flawed and it's very imperfect, but yeah, that has some legs for me. So I'll, I'll give it to Randall. Interesting. Next award is despicable. You, this goes to the character with the worst politics in the movie. Um, and I'm going to about face on you, Branson, and I'm giving this to Randall. Uh, I gave it to Randall. I actually think that Randall is the prototypical reply guy. I feel like the internet comes out and suddenly he's like an alt libertarian nihilist who is just like piling on top of Taylor Lorenz on Twitter and just like really, like really, uh, like going after everybody, like nothing matters, but I'm actually kind of like an alt conservative. Um, so yeah, it was Randall for me. Yeah, thousand percent Randall. Well, get ready to fucking have your mind blown because it's also Randall for me. (laughs) (laughs) I just think he's got like everything that this movie is giving up to you politically. It all sort of comes out the cleanest in Randall's philosophy. I'm here for that. And so like this like this like bootstrap shit that he keeps saying to Dante of like, well, then go get a better job. And it's like and his like refusal to build solidarity with anyone is like so fucked up. And it's it's the worst in Randall than it is in everyone. So I think he's all of the angels and demons in this movie are like contained within him. And I'll give a special shout out to Dante, who I think just interpersonally just fucking sucks. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Really walked away from this with no love for Dante. No, he's such a fucking wet fart of a dude. No, these guys dating profiles. Oh, I can't even imagine. So a star is scorned goes to the supporting actor that this movie should actually be about. I'm going to give this to the woman who masturbates caged animals for artificial insemination. Ooh. Because that to me, I mean, that I was like, I that's the movie I would like to see. I also felt she was one of the best actresses in the film. Delivered her few lines as if they were actually happening. Um, played by Virginia Smith, whose only other IMDb credits are Kevin Smith films. He uses her again. A friend, I'm sure. Doesn't mean she's not acting in other stuff. But yeah, I want to see that movie. And I just thought about, I liked that that part of where the guidance counselors throwing coming to inspect mm-hmm, the mm-hmm. eggs. And just like that, that was like the absurd, another moment of absurdism that I'm like, let's go into this world more of just like, yeah, well, what would you do if like you were living in this like crazy, nothing mattered and your job was meaningless? You should do something like masturbate caged animals. I'm going to give this to Veronica. I think I would love like the story of Veronica, like this very smart, capable woman who is putting yourself through school, dating this dumb asshole. Like, I want to see the movie of her realization that like, like the anti mediocre white guy movie is what I want to see, like her realization of like, oh, this is I should be running away from this at full speed and fully like embracing my own independence. Yeah. Now, if you had asked me that if this was if he like was struck by lightning right after this came out and we never got any other Kevin Smith, I would have said Jay. I would have said like Jay and Silent Bob. (laughs) But (laughs) we've seen that movie and it's not what you would hope it would be. What would you so I can't say that I would hope it would be a movie about small time drug dealers who are like having fun being small time drug dealers. Like, yeah, I mean, essentially, that's just like a Jarmusch. Like they are the most just like. So I guess I don't know, maybe if I got a pulse, I almost said the Navy, the guy who wants to watch Navy Seals. I'm just like fascinated by his inner life. But (laughs) um, uh, Berserker. Oh, Olaf. Olaf. Yeah. The do yeah, I don't know, man. <laughs> it, it, maybe it doesn't reflect well on me, but I want to see more of the the do you want to making fuck like song. Like, yeah, I mean, there's, I mean, he was around when the Berlin Wall came down, so like I would see that, like him in Russia, you know, <laughs> that, like that would be interesting. I would love to see that. 
All right, Branson, um, before we take off, uh, last thing we like to do on this podcast is discuss how we as artists and people try to practice our anti-capitalist beliefs in our own lives with all of its complexities and contradictions. So is there one thing that you try to do in your own life, whether it's a practice you engage in or something that you're involved in that you would like to share with us in the audience? I mean, other than just like the the basic one of like, you know, capitalism and its logical extension of fascism, like don't want you to be joyful or creative. And so do it, do it every fucking day and rub their faces and how like, you know, like how unproductive and creative and joyful you're being other than that, which is like, obviously, that's a given. Uh, I, I've been enjoying, uh, you know, these like um, these like right wing, like, oh, tell on your local library, like if they're hosting like a drag night or whatever, you know, like mm -hmm. these like. Uh, fill them with f fake info, fill them with fake info, encourage other people to fill them with fake info and really go into detail about it, too, because that's harder to um, to just auto block. And if you're doing it from do it from multiple IP addresses, because they can sometimes trace your IP and then they can just delete everything that ever comes from your computer. Fucking go to the library, use a computer and give fake info on those. Uh, you know, it's I, we all have so little power, but the gum them up, you know, jam them. Hell yeah. Hell yeah. I love that. Very clerks of you. Th I'll take that as the compliment and not that I'm engaging in massive misogyny. <laughs> um, and to that end, Branson, my just last question is what is bringing you joy in addition to this act? Because you mentioned joy as an act of resistance and rebellion, but what's bringing you joy right now? You know, that's been really big for me is um, uh, just like developing skills that I'll never make money on and that Ooh. have no product like i'm playing guitar i fucking suck dude i'm i'm never gonna be good i'm never gonna be good at guitar i'm so much better than i was a year ago and it's never gonna be good and it's so joyful to just pick it up and be liberated to be able to suck and like i'm just i've been drawing in a it just for me just making art for me that'll never go up anywhere that no i don't get any dopamine hit from the likes mm. uh yeah i mean just this sounds so stupid, but just being useless. It's very liberating to just be fucking useless. That's huge. That's huge because like every human is is fueled by creative energy of some kind. And whether that creative energy goes towards an actual art like guitar or drawing or whether that creativity goes towards, you know, like uh, uh, building things or uh, yeah. taking taking care of other people like that, that is the creative energy that we all need to use. And when it gets expended on dumb bullshit, like working in a convenience store, that's when you get depressed. Um, so I think like reminding people that like just being creative to be creative is like is such a liberating and joyful and yeah, like it's it's an act of resistance in in a lot of ways. Hell yeah. This was such an awesome conversation. It is so good to see you guys. So good yeah. to see you too. Thank you so much for being here. Uh, we love you so much. You're the best. Love you guys too. Love you. Thank you all so much for listening. Make sure to follow us on Instagram and TikTok. And if you've been enjoying this show, please consider becoming a supporter. You can find all of that info at NBCPod.com. For next week's movie, we will be watching the 1974 noir classic, Chinatown. Thanks, everyone. See ya.